0: Hello and welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman, and I'm Brandon Buddha. In this episode, we will be having
1: our discussion, the second of two episodes, on "The Inmost Light" by Arthur Mackin. This was published in 1894.
0: Yeah, this is our second of two episodes. We did the recap last time. This is going to be the discussion, as Brandon said, and I think there's a lot to talk about here. It's a strangely crafted story, but also Mackin is dealing with some interesting philosophical and, and even biological concepts. Also, just some some great crisp writing. So lots to talk about. So let's just get into it. What What do you want to do first, Brandon?
1: Yeah, well, there's there's quite a lot worth discussing in the story. And I, I, I well, before I ask you a question or start diving into the discussion, I have to repeat as I said in our recap episode, as we both said, that here is the Mac and I've been waiting to cover and read on this show. The the Inmost Light is so full of charm and fantastic descriptive writing and strong dialogue and characterization. Though, you're right to point out, Glenn, that it does have some odd techniques, some odd choices in the telling of the story. And that is where I'd like to begin. I'd like to talk about technique to open our discussion. In the recap episode, I pointed out how Dyson, and you also mentioned this, is a recurring character in Mackin's work. But this story follows two protagonists. We start out with Salisbury, who bails out of the story halfway through. And then we move on to Dyson, who completes this investigation. And this is a really strange move to me. And I wonder what Mackin is up to. Do you think he's trying to contrast these two characters in some way? Is he giving us Salisbury's point of view to keep us on our toes and to give us a small commentary, maybe a personal commentary of Mackin's on eccentric detectives and detective fiction? What did you make of this technique
0: of Mackin's, Glenn? Why give us these two points of view? Yeah, it's a, it is an interesting choice. It's a strange choice because I, I think maybe the, the thing to wonder is what's the point of Salisbury? If the, the core of the story that we're getting is Dyson's account of his investigations, and then the discovery of Dr. Black's diary, this confession that we get, you know, you know we just get to read at the end of the end of the story as part five of the story, then what do we even need Salisbury for, other than that he has the note that has the clues that gets us to the journal in the first place, But, you know, you can come up with and some other device to to have that happen, right? I mean, that because the device in itself is crazy already. Like he just randomly meets this couple who throws some garbage at him and it happens to have this clue <laughs> right? I mean, that in itself is crazy, so you could come up with something you know, even less crazy actually, and just give it to Dyson. So you don't really need Salisbury for that. So, None of that is the purpose of Salisbury. So Salisbury is here to be a foil to Dyson, or a foil isn't right, a a counterpoint to Dyson. And I think that you're absolutely on the right mark, Brandon, to, to point to the trope in detective fiction of there being two people, the detective and the sidekick, and the sidekick is the narrator. I mean, we have seen this the very first episode of Elder Side, right? The very first story that we did, The Murders in the Rue Morgue, lays out that template that has never gone away, although when people do it now, they are doing it as an intentional pastiche, but it was the template for a century. Uh, more than a century, in fact, right. That if you're going to write a detective story, this is the best way to to do it. In fact, we should be clear: we're going to get that next week when we uh, uh, <laughs> do a uh, an, an occult detective story by Seabury Quinn. We are going to be talking about uh, detective fiction tropes. Again, in that story, uh, you're doing that discussion too, Brandon. So we'll see. Uh, we'll see what your different approach will be. But what's interesting about this, right, is that the way that Mackin is playing with that here in 1894 is that he's making both of them the sidekick sometimes, and both of them the narrator sometimes. And that's a cool way to play with this trope. I think
1: I agree with you. And he's also diving in deep, as we said, into the Edwardian fiction trope of the men getting together over brandy or Benedictine or wine or whatever and and cigars and telling ghost stories to one another. Of course, this is the trope that makes Peter Straub's ghost story such an incredible novel. I mean this anchors the novel this this trope. And I think that Mackin is also giving you said counterpoint and I think that's right, but also using Salisbury to comment on the eccentricity of detectives. One thing that Salisbury points out that is echoed in Dyson's encounter with Dr. Black is how if Dyson hadn't inherited money from his uncle, he'd be like a mad street prophet or something along those lines. He might be just viewed as insane. While Black's pursuit of his mad science ruins him entirely and also has him living a pauper's life, Black also performed these experiences while well, he was a respectable doctor. And I wonder if you think Mackin is using Salisbury or maybe just in general commenting on class and tolerance of eccentricities in people or on class and madness. What our culture or Mackin's culture is willing to overlook once the person has the right signifiers of good social standing. And, and I wonder if you think, you know, one, if Salisbury's here to give us this commentary on, on that in general, or if you think Macken is pointing something else out by showing us these characters as they might be, or as they are in the case of Black, without the social signifiers of wealth or good
0: social standing. Yeah, this is a really great observation about this story. I don't think we ever know what Salisbury does for a living. At least I don't recall that being in the story. But you know, he's like a banker or something, right? I mean, he's a guy who wears a suit and uh, works near the the river in central London, and you know, has a, a fair amount of money, you know, to go to a, a restaurant with a with a velvet seat uh, and not worry about it, and 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 so on. But man, he's dull. I mean, he's really boring. You know, even though he gets involved in the mystery and, you know, ends up with the clue that gets Dyson access to the journal, he's the straight man in all of this. But he is contrasted with Dyson. But you're right, he is also contrasted with Dr. Black. And I hadn't really thought about that because Dr. Black is basically a mad scientist as we talked about in the the recap episode. <laughs> and, and that's really Dr. Black's sad story is that he was a mad scientist and he loved being a mad scientist, but then he felt all this pressure to get married and buy a house and uh, get a upper middle class job to support that house and that wife. And he did love his wife, of course, as well, but it turns out that he loved being a mad scientist more. And he set aside that passion and that pursuit in order to try to live the life that society Expected of him. Uh, also, you know the alternative, right? The what if Doctor Black hadn't gotten married is probably that he would have been abducting people, and it would have been ex- in fact the exact plot of Purity, probably, right? He would have been abducting people from the poor parts of of London, little kids and stuff right. to do these experiments on. I guess. So here, at least, he had to sacrifice someone he cared for. I don't know. That was a dichotomy I didn't intend to be uh, thinking about there about the sort of what ifs of Doctor Black's life. But you're right that I think it's really important that Mac and emphasizes the fact that he is leading a life that he didn't want to live, and what that does to him, and how he's unable to resist the compulsion that he feels of being a mad scientist. But then here, in between them, we've got Dyson, who has more money than either of them, though he's inherited it. He's not done anything to earn that money other than exist. But he, his whole life has been lived for his own interest, for his own pursuits. He's got a degree in uh, classics. Eh, so do I, you know, so that resonates <laughs> with me. Uh, it turns out that that's kind of useless, especially since he doesn't want to go be a banker like, you know, Salisbury is or whatever, you know, an accountant or something like that, something to do with business. doesn't want to do those things. And is choosing not to do those things, right? He's clearly someone of station because he and Salisbury already knew each other. He has family with money. Uh, He's able to talk to the doctor without the doctor feeling like he's in a different class or something like that. So clearly was born into class, but didn't do anything to maintain that for himself and has just preferred to live a life pursuing his own interest. In some ways, the opposite choice that the doctor made. And he, maybe of these three characters, is the only one of them who is happy, because of it. But it is also because of the accident of this inheritance. I don't know. I lost track of what your question there was, Brandon, I will say. And I was just kind of, uh, I don't know, musing on the, uh, the the ways of seeing these characters, their relationship with work, their relationship with money, and where they fit into the the class structure and how happy they are.
1: Yeah. And I think those are excellent points. I, I was looking at a broader commentary that Macken might be engaging with about the toleration of certain types of characters in society that are only tolerated because they have these social signifiers of wealth. And and Salisbury's presence in this story is at least in part to give us that kind of mundane middle-class character who's looking at this and saying, well, we can brush over Early Doctor Black and ignore what he's done because he has a house in the suburbs and a beautiful wife and the townspeople have seen them out and about and we can ignore the fact that Doctor Black has pulled a like a a David Miscavige type of move like the the (laughs) the guy who runs Scientology right now who's like nobody's seen his wife in a long time and they're like that's fine because he's you know got this standing in society and we sure sure his wife is fine and he 's a doctor, and with Dyson you know who 's looked at as Salisbury as this vagrant, basically regardless uh, and that 's how he sees him in his in his mind 's eye, regardless of the wealth that he has, that yeah if he didn 't have wealth and he was pursuing this stuff he 'd be insane, but now he 's eccentric and what What you think Mackin is doing by One, putting Salisbury in that position and then taking Salisbury out of the story when we get to the really weird reveal, Um, but also having Salisbury the kind of be the observer of this attitude towards social signifying
0: of wealth and toleration of eccentric characters. Well, certainly you can be a crazy person if you're wealthy, right? I think we all know right. that we live in that world. You can be an eccentric person, right? You can live a life where what you like to do is go urban exploring in, in London, uh, claim to be a writer because, you know, maybe you published one story in an amateur magazine one time and you have ideas, you know, sometimes you have a journal with you, but really you're just walking around London and visiting different pubs and involving yourself in local gossip and staring in people's windows <laughs> at their wives and stuff, I guess, right? You can do that if you're... Uh, if You've got wealth, and people will will overlook it. They'll take they'll they'll take you seriously. If you don't have money, now you're a vagrant, right? And you're going to be in some trouble. I mean, certainly that's true. I I wonder though if that is really what Mackin is up to in this story, because it seems to me that Salisbury is actually the one who's living the delusion here. And so, in some ways, this this feels to me more like. Dr. Black and Dyson both see the world for what it really is, which is that there's all this weird supernatural paranormal stuff going on. But Salisbury is the one who's insistent that London is super boring. There's nothing strange happening here. And uh, everything is normal. The whole world is normal. And I don't even want to be bothered with this strange note anymore. I just want you to take it, Dyson. And, you know, your, your story is crazy and it makes me feel uncomfortable. But, you know, thanks for the cigars and the, uh, the Benedictine. That was great. But I'm never going to hang out with you again. That's who Salisbury is and something that I wanted to ask you Brandon about the incident when Salisbury finds the the note or gets this note, you know, thrown at him as a piece of garbage in this uh this alley he's ducked down is that Salisbury is very close to his home when this happens yet he doesn't know where he is. He ducks down this the street, it's not really an alley, it's just a street to get out of the rain and to find a pub and he just doesn't know where he is he doesn't recognize it and it feels very much like he's stepped into another world like he's stepped into part of the city that he's never seen before i mean i mean frankly it's like diagon alley right it's this part of london that yeah. exists that that he's walked by a thousand times but never seen before and i thought it was important that he encounters this part of london that has been invisible to him Up until now, uh, right after he's hung out with Dyson and heard this weird story, like hearing the weird story lets you now see actually how weird London is like you've got to be exposed directly to the weird. It's like like a contagion that has to be transmitted to you. And he gets wrapped up in the story. I mean, it is it is totally a crazy coincidence that the solution to finding Mrs. Black's soul in a rock and also the diary that goes with it is dependent on Salisbury trying to get out of the rain, going to part of the town that he's never seen before and having garbage thrown at him, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, Salisbury really is caught up in his own head a lot. I mean, he doesn't even see Dyson until Dyson bumps into him. Uh, and he he's really... Stuck in his own head. He's really resistant to encountering the world that he's in. And he seems to prefer to be in his imagination. Like he has this sense of Paris that he's unwilling to impute upon London, even though Dyson says, you're wrong about this. And and we are going to talk about the role that coincidence and and happenstance plays in the story, because it's very strange. But it's it's really clear to me that. Salisbury is infected, uh, as you say, by this note. He can't throw it away. He can't burn it. It gets stuck in his head and he has to get rid of it. And he doesn't even care where it ends up. But somehow he thinks by not resolving what it is, it's going to remove this, this, I don't know, this mantra of the doggerel uh, from his head. And I'm just, I'm maybe convinced that Salisbury is just the type of person who would succeed in that and being like, I've gotten rid of it. I've passed it on to somebody else. I don't need to think about this anymore. I can get on with my life. But his life is lived entirely in the removal of himself from his immediate surroundings. So almost anywhere he'd go in London that's not familiar, that he doesn't already have the full image of in his head, would be a new encounter. And that's a kind of a problem that he's only he's mediating all of his experiences, perhaps through his imagination, but he's dull and he doesn't have a very good imagination. (laughs) And so his encounter with the world is, it's a a rough, it's a rough character trait, I think, to have. And, And Salisbury and Dyson are both characters who interest me a lot. They're really greatly written characters.
0: Well, I hadn't thought about any of this at all, Brandon, <laughs> until we started having this conversation, but thinking about jobs and money and class as they're presented here in this story, it seems like Mac and maybe without realizing it was definitely advocating for a universal basic income, right? That I think Salisbury <laughs> is unhappy and dull and boring because all he thinks about is work because that's what he does. He goes to work, but, you know, Dyson doesn't have to have a job, so he he gets to be happy. He gets to do all this exploring. And then Dr. Black, I mean, you know, he, he ends up having to murder his wife after he steals her soul. But, you know, if he'd been able to just get a check from the government every uh, every month, he could have afforded some lab rats, you know, to work on and follow his passion, <laughs> I guess. So I don't know. It's a cautionary tale.
1: Yeah, perhaps. I mean, it's really fascinating to me the way Macken is, is encountering class in the story. And, uh, i don't think it's by accident, I think he's got something on his on his mind though he's not developed it uh in in this tale because this tale is really not about the characters, even though that is what made this story stand out to me it's a story with a plot and stuff too, so we should talk about <laughs> some of what Machin is up to in the in the inmost light besides uh interesting class dynamics This is a story that's about the removal of the soul and its effects on a person. And a prerequisite for this story to work is a belief in the soul, at least in the world of the characters, at least the characters believe in souls. And Mackin does build this up. There are mentions of the Christian church and of satyrs and of, of demons. There's a comparison of the brains between humans and animals. So maybe lab rats wouldn't work because lab rats... You can tell by their brains that they don't have souls, I guess, according to this brain specialist. (laughs) And this is to say that we're dealing with dualism, the concept of two substances of matter and spirit. I don't want to go down that road again, but uh, (laughs) we're dealing with dualism and uh, the concept of the split between different sorts of worlds. And this is really what I think Macken is up to in this story. He's looking at these liminal spaces. You brought up how... Salisbury is in this different world as he crosses this threshold, how the split between the country uh, and the city of London proper are kind of this liminal space. And, and so Mackin is looking at the mundane world, and then he's also looking at the world that cannot be captured by our typical movements through that mundane world. So I think this story is less caught up in substance dualism than it is with the traversal and exposure to realities that are greater than our imaginations of them. And and we've already kind of prefigured this into our conversation by thinking about what Salisbury is doing in this story. So to kind of make this more concrete, I'll toss out the first example of this that I saw in the text, which is the way that Salisbury and Dyson experience London differently. Salisbury thinks it's a dull place, that the cityscape has deformed the natural landscape, at least that's how I read it, and that it's destroyed by smog, though, of course, this veil of of blue fog could be something different. But you know, we might read this as smog in some way, and that Paris isn't like this. The real city is Paris. And it's a sort of resentful posture that Salisbury has towards his place, towards his home. And Dyson is like, no, you're not looking deep enough. There's fascination and oddity to be found even in the sleepiest parts of the city, to be pulled into mystery. And I wonder first, Glenn, if you see other examples of this sort of crossing over into between these liminal spaces. Other examples of that in this story, obviously the Charleston case has elements of it. And why you think Machin is exploring this concept? Like, how has he made it weird? What does it have to do with the removal of the soul of the body, if anything?
0: Well, I think the encountering of Diagon Alley isn't, you know, certainly one of these, uh, these transitions here, these, you know, finding these, these liminal spaces. There, there's also a really cool transition that we get when Salisbury shows up to Dyson's flat. I think. Part of that is because Salisbury is skeptical that Dyson really has money. He's incredulous. He doesn't believe it. I think that's at least half of why why Salisbury has actually shown up to keep their appointment is uh <laughs> is that is to find out if Dyson really has money. And when he enters Dyson's home and discovers, yeah, he does, the way that he discovers he's got money is in how opulently it's decorated, but in particular it's that it's covered with uh rugs that he describes as oriental and 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 is talking about the bright colors. So I think we're meant to imagine here like Persian and and Turkish rugs that are really brightly colored and, you know, quite nice, quite excellent and very expensive, very posh. And that's how he knows. But the description that we, we get is as if Salisbury is entering another world as he enters Dyson's home. And indeed he is, right? Because hearing this story is taking him to another world. So that's definitely one. I think as well, this shabby room in this shabby house or grim room in the shabby house that Dr. Black is living in is another one of these uh, these these transition moments here or liminal moments where Dr. Black is kind of in a state of limbo as he's in this room. He's, he's fallen from the, the station he Held previously, though of his own doing, right? It's not like he's lost his money or lost his home because his business went bad or something like that. This is because of the, the horrible thing that he's done. But he is now just living in this state of limbo where he's carrying around a tin box with his wife's soul and a confession. In it. And this room that he's in is a kind of, I mean, literal limbo or, or possibly a you know, purgatory that he has put himself in while he's you know, waiting to go face judgment for what he's done, is, is my sense of how he ends out his days anyway.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's right. And I really love the way that Mackin is moving all of his characters, particularly his protagonists through these liminal spaces into these other worlds and saying to all of them uh, whether they're open to it or not that there's more to the world than they are ready to experience and and this is kind of the core concept of weird fiction as, as we discussed briefly in the recap episode but also throughout the history of this show that, Weird fiction, on some level, is, is about the encountering of the unknown and maybe unknowable. And Mackin has a very light touch with this. And and rather than focusing on like substance dualism, like what is the matter of the soul in this story, he's really looking at the way these characters are transitioning through these spaces. The extraction of the soul has very little bearing on the story. It's more like the way that the encounter. With these transitional spaces. Maybe the portals you go through that are bricked up behind you that you can't walk back through do actually impact our material being. So the brain doctor talks about this, the brain specialist, where like changes in consciousness have, which is, you know, mysterious, maybe. It's something that. We can't just point to one area of the brain, perhaps, maybe someday we will, though I'm not a uh, a materialist in the sense that <laughs> if we can describe all brain states in terms of material language and processes, we'll also be describing the same thing that is happening to us, uh, as we say, maybe commonly spiritually, but within consciousness, within moods, uh, within our uh, attitudes and approaches to the world, that we need this sort of encounter with the the larger world in these liminal spaces to have a real sense of what our world is actually. And we have examples of characters who this has no bearing on, which is Salisbury, though he does kind of get infected. I love that word, uh, in in the sense of his being dragged into this mystery of being pulled into encountering the world in this mysterious way. We see it with Mrs. Black who dies as a result of this. Her soul is extracted. So she's maybe no longer able to see the the larger world. Maybe the world is just something evil to her and she's become evil. And then Dr. Black, whatever happens to him, he doesn't ex- extract his soul, but his activities change his material being. He ages rapidly. He walks with a cane. He's poor. His whole material circumstances change. And then Dyson is of course our our Virgil, maybe through this. He's the one who's open to all of these possibilities already. His imagination is large enough to encounter the truth of all these things, of the unseen world that allow him to make sense of our world. And so maybe a question to to wrap up this portion, my my rambling monologue here is do you think we can make any statements on Mackin's weird cosmology based on the story, based on the way that he has his characters encounter the unseen to make sense of the scene and to move them through these liminal places
0: even though it's not the main thrust of the the story and we don't get any particulars about it we don't get any details about it i mean there is substance dualism in this story there is a sense that there's the material world and the spiritual world right so like that's inherent in the cosmology that Macken is dealing with here the substance dualism i mean there's you know a lot of plato here in this in this story a lot of a lot of platonism a lot of neoplatonism maybe in this story but none of that is the main thrust right that's just the the background That's it's really kind of the MacGuffin because you're right that what Mackin is doing is showing us the the journeys that these characters are, are on here. And so in thinking about what's the big cosmology that Mackin envisions here, I mean, I think it simply is that there is a world that is other than what we see. And, and what is the relationship between that world and our world that is maybe not clear here, right? I mean, are we thinking of the, Allegory of the cave, or are we thinking of shadows here, right, from the Plato's Re- Republic, or is there some other, you know, metaphor or allegory that he might use to describe the relationship between the world as people like Salisbury perceive it and the world as it actually is, which is to say, as it's perceived by Doctor Black and then also Dyson, if even they are perceiving the world as it is, right? There still might be another world, another layer, maybe we could say, uh, beyond that one that they don't see. In fact, veil, right? Veil is the word that is used in the first paragraph of this story. And I think we sh- we should call that back here uh, in thinking about Mackin's cosmology. He thinks there's a veil and you can see behind the veil or you can not see behind the veil. And Salisbury clearly does not. Uh, Dr. Black clearly does. And-, and Dyson does as well, though with very different results than Dr. Black. But I do think Salisbury is now also going to start seeing beyond the veil or behind the veil it's unclear how infected he is with this though if he can overlook this if he can just put his head back down and you know walk from his flat to his job to his Favorite restaurant and back and not end up in Diagon Alley again, or you know wherever he wound up, or if he's going to start encountering weird stuff all over the place too I, I don't think Mekin ever tells us any more stories about Salisbury, but that might actually be a great angle for someone else to to you know take it to take this as a cue to write some fan fiction about this story. What happens to Salisbury now that he's been exposed to this world behind the veil
1: yeah it's a great. Entry point into writing a, a kind of a minor portal fantasy or even a a a weird story you know in the in the vein of lovecraft where you 're just kind of a mundane person just starts seeing weird stuff and goes mad i mean Salisbury, I think is the the type who would go mad uh, in in a Lovecraft story, who, having been exposed, would have no way back. The the way back is is an obstacle.
0: There's no way he can pass through again uh, once he's been exposed to it. Right. This note gets in his mind and really bothers him. So like you can't imagine him reading the the play, The King in Yellow, right, and surviving right. much of that. This little <laughs> nursery rhyme gets in his head this way. Well, I kind of want to talk about Salisbury finding this note here, and then I want
1: to talk about it with an eye to the role that happenstance and coincidence or serendipity or, or whatever word you'd like to use. That plays in this story. And I'm really interested in how happenstance informs Dyson's method as, quote, the Wellington of mysteries. I think that's such a good joke <laughs> on Mackin's part. I mean, it's so nerdy, but it's really funny. Dyson doesn't investigate anything so much as just keep himself open to the, I don't know, connectivity of all things. The whole revelation and resolution of the mystery of this story Hinges upon coincidence. Dyson running into Dr. Black through a fallen hat that he recognized from a maker in Piccadilly when he was kind of wasting his life there a little bit. Salisbury coming across this crumpled note. The meandering seeking of the meaning of the note that Dyson undertakes. You know, it's all happenstance. Like, no character's agency. I mean, Dyson is open to the experience and he goes out to look for answers, but he's not like, gumshoeing, right? He's not following a process. So I wonder first, Glenn, if you think Mackin is is commenting on the tropes found in detective stories. And then why do you think Macken is taking this approach to Dyson, uncovering the mystery in this story?
0: Yeah. Method is an interesting word that is really important in detective stories. You know, it's something that, in particular, you know, shows up a lot in Holmes. It shows up a lot in in Agatha Christie's, uh, especially the Poirot stories. I think Miss Marple might talk about method a little bit too, but 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 Poirot certainly does a lot. This idea that there's a science to what you are doing in you're, you're detecting, but actually, you know, the people writing these stories are not detectives, uh, are not police, and don't have any idea what they're talking about. They're just trying to tell a good yarn, right? And so mostly what they show the detectives doing, even while claiming that they're employing a method, is actually just be on the lucky side of happenstance, right? There are stories where Holmes does some like real investigating, like some real sleuthing for clues. But for the most part, Holmes's trick is actually just that he has an encyclopedic knowledge of stuff. And that's kind of happenstantial on its own, right? And it's not really all that different, I don't think, than Dyson just wandering around London and happening to be in the right place at the the right time, having these crazy things happen. Because hey, look, that's what stories are. We tell stories about weird things that happen, even when it's not a weird fiction story. Stories are about this is an unusual thing that happened because otherwise, you know, if it was usual, we would not be very interested in it. Um, but I do so. So there's a set. There's a part of me, maybe a snide, cynical part of me, and you know, and as. So someone who writes detective fiction, who just wants to say that Mackin is pointing out that there is no such thing as method in these stories, that what people are calling method is just narrative intrusion, right? It's just the narrator writing a plot. It's not really a method.
1: Yeah, I I found that as well in this story. And I wonder if it has to do with Mackin's general interest in The coming together of things in this story, the the movement through these spaces, these liminal spaces opens you up to more possibilities. And so everything is just kind of connected and Dyson is open to that. And that's what makes him the Wellington of, of mysteries, (laughs) um, (laughs) I don't think we're ever gonna meet a Napoleon of crime in a, a Mackin story, but this attitude towards, hey, I'm focused on uncovering what this mystery means, so I'm just gonna wander around and let my brain make connections in the world. Which is essentially what Sherlock Holmes does, though he's sometimes interviews people and sometimes he refers to his encyclopedic knowledge. But yeah, what's really going on is uh, uh the building of a of a mouse trap in some ways. You know, it's it's not really that any of this actually happened. It's not a detective doing an interrogation on somebody who knows it's the murder and trying to get a confession because he doesn't want to go to trial because that's a waste of time. <laughs> you know, <it's> not, <laughs> None of that stuff is going on. It's not a procedural in that way. It's, uh, I think Machin is kind of lightly pointing fun at Arthur Conan Doyle's mysteries in this story
0: well, I think you're're you're, you're onto to that for sure, in that right. What Holmes does is happen to know the the prints of or the the patterns in every type of boot and shoe sole, And so he can recognize footprints or or can see the marks in the footprints and say, "Oh, I know what store. I know what shop that must have been purchased at. Let's go." talk to that person or he you know knows an awful lot about different types of tobaccos and where you can get them and all of that sort of thing right so he's making observations he's noticing things that other people don't notice and absolutely dyson is doing the same thing here right what what leads him to the soul of Mrs. Black and uh, the the diary is that he's able to decipher the clue on the note that Salisbury has because he pays attention to the city, because he wanders around and he knows the city. He knows everything about it. He knows where Diagon Alley and Nocturne Alley are and so on (laughs) in ways that Salisbury and other people don't. So it is observation, but then also his own encyclopedic knowledge and the connection of those two that are his method that is not actually a method.
1: Well, as this is the introduction to a kind of iconic detective in some way of of the weird, maybe in comparing Dyson to Holmes. I wonder if you think that Dyson is as satisfying as Holmes is, you know, Holmes is a person who's motivated. He has agency, even though his encyclopedic knowledge of stuff is ultimately pretty silly. It gives him the agency to act. And do you see Dyson acting in that way to uncover the mystery in this story? Or do you think Machin is trying to just jam two or three Tropes of different genres together, you know, the Edwardian ghost story, the weird tale, and the mystery story.
0: Yeah, great question. So first of all, let, let's be clear. I love Sherlock Holmes, and I don't mean to be maligning we, or disparaging we both do. Holmes. <laughs> right, yeah. And in fact, we would love to do some some Holmes stories here on Elder Sign. Uh, someday, Brent and I are going to do uh, Neil Gaiman's Sherlock Holmes Lovecraft mashup study in Emerald. So we're going to have to do a study in Scarlet before we get to that. Like that's, that's just, uh, you know, that's non-negotiable as far as I'm concerned. So it is going to happen someday, somewhere on the network. We would love to do it. So I don't mean to disparage or malign Holmes, or anything about that genre. And we are going to be talking about the long history of detective fiction again next week when we get our first Seabury Quinn story as well. We love this stuff here, but I think it's a great idea to compare Holmes to Dyson here because what makes Holmes stories great is Holmes, is Holmes and Watson. The way that Holmes is this kind of manic genius and the way that Watson has to... Almost be his buffer for the, the the world, right? And certainly that is a attack that uh, adapters of Holmes into uh, different uh, media, you know, film and television and so on, have taken, have chosen to emphasize in their relationship and and so on. Uh, that's really quite awesome. So I love Holmes, uh, and i Dyson is significantly lesser than Holmes for sure, but I think that we have to give Dyson a bit of a pass in comparison to Holmes here because this actually feels like an origin story to me. You called it I- I- iconic in the sense that you're going to reset at the end and we're just going to tell a series of mysteries with this character in which there's not really a whole lot of character growth because that's not what we're here for. We're here for the mystery of the week. But this feels like an origin story to me, in which. This moment at the end when he lets Mrs. Black's soul out, and that's just kind of the end of the story, this to me felt like an aha moment. Like this is the moment where Dyson puts it all together, that he he has a real sense now that it's not just that London is cool, that he can study the physiology of London as an organism and that there's weird stuff that happens in London, but that he realizes that there is actually a veil and that he has found what's behind it. And now he's going to be motivated in future stories to really investigate as opposed to just wander around and let happenstance do things. that That's my sense of it. I don't remember the other story he's in very well, but my sense of it is that he's going to have more agency there.
1: Well, I hope so. And I hope we get to cover that story on, on the network someday. I love what Machin is doing in this story. And I, and I do think he is kind of jamming some tropes together and working out a lot of what he's trying to accomplish as a writer in in this story. Uh, it is an early story of, of Mackin's. So love to read more of him. And I don't think this is the first time we're going to deal with uh, the expulsion of a, of a soul from a body in Arthur Mackin either.
0: I mean, we obviously could have just done an occult detective show instead of a broader weird fiction show. We keep really accidentally actually getting these uh, these episodes. In fact, I'll be honest, or I'll, I'll confess is really what I should say, Brandon, is that... Uh, um, I put the wrong story on the ballot. I went to this story because I thought it was the story I was thinking of in The Frolic when we were covering Legati's The Frolic when I said, oh, this is uh, an updated version of this Mackin story. I thought it was this story. It wasn't. And I won't tell you which story it is, but I did figure it out. (laughs) But only after I started reading this for this episode. But I am glad that we did quasi-randomly end up doing this story. And I think it will be interesting to do a comparison of occult detectives, especially these, uh, these occult detectives of what I'm going to insist on calling now the Fin de Secla, or, you know, this late Victorian slash Edwardian period, uh, particularly in Britain, that we'll be getting a different occult detective next week. But it would be fun to maybe do, uh, I don't know, there's some special episode where we just talk about these different detectives and do a bit of a comparison of them. Maybe that's something we can wrap into a year in review show. Uh, uh, maybe not this year, but I don't know, some year to come. But I know we're close to getting out of here. We're close to wrapping this episode up. But Brandon, I want to ask a a plot question to you, something that Mackin is not concerned with at all. But what is going on with the fact that this shop has the tin that has Mrs. Black's soul and Dr. Black's journal in it? Who is Q? Who is Mr. Davies? Who are these people? I totally forgot to
1: <laughs> add this to the discussion because it, <laughs> it's so Im- immaterial to the story and it kind of just points to the the happenstantial or circumstantial nature of everything that's going on. Yeah, Makin's not interested in this at all. Like It is a thread left dangling uh, in the overall plot of the story, which is why I went the only way to think about this is to point to how everything is just happening through circumstance. I mean, you pointed out in the recap that Dr. Black was kind of ranting that this stuff was stolen from him. He could also be have been mad and put it in the care of this shopkeeper. Um, There's no sense that anybody's going to come looking for this. And so my sense was that Dr. Black had done this himself. Somehow, the place that Salisbury... Stumbled into uh, what you've been calling Diagon Alley is also the the boarding house where Dr. Black was staying um and and that that's the connection I made but it's not spelled out in the text. it's not even hinted at in the text and that that's the only thing I could come up with that Maybe somebody did rob Dr. Black's flat here. Maybe this couple fighting is the couple that ran the house where he stayed in and kept his room. Maybe the husband was the one who stole it. Maybe they ripped people off um and gave it to a like a weird shopkeeper like a fence to hold on to until they could sell it uh until people stopped looking for Dr. Black or knew about him. I'm not sure, but it's not well spelled out and the way the story is glued together leads me to believe that what Mackin wanted to highlight was how coincidence sort of makes this work and not the deeper machinations of human networks and people committing crimes and things like that.
0: Yeah, my sense of this was a, a little bit different than yours. I mean, for, for one, I thought that the, the couple arguing in the, the alley was... Mr. Davies, that's that's Mr. Davies there, who now is not getting this note from Q to go pick this thing up, and so that's why it's still there. And Dyson can go get it, but who Q is is a real mystery. But I have a sense that Q is someone who knows what he's up to, that he's a collector of souls or something like that. You know, I don't know. He's a, you know he's a dark wizard or you know something like that, and. I wonder, right, if if this is someplace Mackin was thinking about going, right, as Dyson is really discovering what he's got in his possession and just how weird the world behind the veil is, is he now going to launch his career as an occult detective since he's got the you know the money and the time and inclination to do it since he's not really writing all that much? Is he going to try to find out who Q is? Is that what his adventures are all going to be? That he's going to try to find out who Q is? Certainly that's what I would do. And, uh, in fact, it's something I might do, and I think I would like to encourage the, uh, the writers in our audience to do as well. There are, there are a couple launching off points here. Write us a story about Salisbury. Write us a story about Q. I, I would love to read these.
1: There really are a, a number of launching off points, and it's because I think Mackin was working out just what he wanted this story to be as he was writing it. and. That's not to say it's a poorly crafted story. It's an excellently crafted story, but it does feel like he left some threads out there uh, to tug on. And I don't know if he picks them back up in, in his other stories, but it certainly makes me
0: want to read more of his Dyson tales. Yeah, it's a shame that I think we really do only get two or three of these stories from Dyson. It might even really only be one more. But it's clear that Macken here is considering launching his own line of occult detective stories. And maybe this one just wasn't a particularly commercial success for him, or the second one wasn't, or he had more success with something else. And of course, I'm glad we get the Macken we get, but there's a part of me that laments that we don't get as many of these Dyson stories as we do John Silence and Karnacki stories, and certainly not anywhere near as, as many uh, stories as we get of uh, Jules de Grandin, as we will uh, talk about next week.
1: Well, I'm excited to get to all of these occult detectives. I'm excited to see if more of these uh, Dyson Mackin stories show up on the ballot, and hopefully we'll be able to cover them.
0: But that's going to do it for this episode. I'm Brandon Buddha, And I'm Glenn McDorman. As always, you can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. If you'd like to support the network, please join us on Patreon at patreon.com slash claytemplemedia.
1: Head on over to the clay temple forums or our new subreddit and let us know what you thought of the inmost light. Let us know what you thought of our coverage write us some weird fiction here, write us a spinoff story. We'd love to read it.
0: (laughs) Yes, we absolutely would, especially since we're going to be in detectives here for uh, uh, at least a little while longer. Because as I've said many times, next time we are going to be back with Horror on the Links by Seabury Quinn. This is the first of the Jules de Grandin occult detective stories that uh, is the most frequently published type of story in Weird Tales. We'll talk about that next time. But until then, we greet you and say farewell.